0: Yo, this is episode 22, 22, for in the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kamboui Bomani, back again, yet again, beautiful Saturday afternoon outside of my backyard, and you know we have playoffs, NBA playoffs, continuing, ongoing, we're in the conference finals platform at all in the West, in the East, I have Phoenix versus the LA Clippers in the West. And then in the East, we have the Atlanta Hawks and the Milwaukee Bucks. And while I almost just said the Philadelphia 76ers, we got to talk about something. We have to talk about something as a collective, as a unit, as we watch, more than likely listen, not watch, but listen to his podcast on Apple and on Spotify. The Philadelphia 76ers should be here, right now playing, for a chance to go to the NBA Finals. And they're not because of two reasons. Reason number one is the big one that I think a lot of people aren't really talking about. They're just inferring that Doc Rivers should be fired because he blows leads, even though this team had one lead in the series. Two one lead. They did blow a 26-point lead in game five and blew a double-digit lead in game three. Doc Rivers' undying loyalty to his star players has been paramount since his Boston Celtic days. They've caught up to him against the Clippers and they've caught up to him against the Sixers in the reality of not adjusting to the pulse of a series. Excuse me, he didn't adjust at all in this Atlanta Hawks series in terms of understanding that your second best player, Ben Simmons, can't be on the floor against a team that can score in bunches that show needs of match. Fire for firepower. He has to be on the bench, especially in the last quarter of basketball when the game is hanging in the balance and one team can take it by the throat and take over for good. Did not do that in game seven. Now, will good Doc Credit, he did a fabulous job of understanding the importance of on-ball brawl pressure and trapping the electric Young of the Atlanta Hawks. He's going to get his due praise in this segment much later, but he didn't pull the plug on the Ben Simmons love affair that he stood his ground on from the time he got the job saying Ben Simmons doesn't have to develop anything we just need to play placate to his strengths and to the end where he finally admitted he did not know if Ben Simmons could be the point guard that they needed him to be for this team to win a championship he lived on that sword and he died by it but the second biggest reason why the Philadelphia 76ers aren't in the Eastern Conference Finals Ben Simmons himself as an individual refused to develop his basketball game. The same way he played at Montverde High School, the same way he played at Louisiana State University, the same way he played for the Philadelphia 76ers as a rookie, or yes, he did win Rookie of the year. That's the same game this guy has. He'll occasionally drop 30 or 40, depending on the matchup. Like people love saying Rudy Gobert. He killed him, and then went head-to-head in the regular season. But Rudy Gobert has a history of being barbecue chicken away from the paint. But when the rubber meets the road in a seven game series where you're playing against other wings that are just as athletic as you are, a defensive scheme that that knows that you can't shoot the basketball. So they're going to make sure to not respect you at all 10 to 15 feet away from the basket. They're going to stand in the paint, even if it's called for three seconds. You are forever neutralized in such a playoff setting. And he never took ownership within himself to develop as a basketball player to perfect a mid-range jump shot because he felt entitled and believed enough due to the accolades and the credentials that the media has given him, that he was good. I'm a three-time All-Star, two-time first-team All-Defense, one rookie of the year over Donovan Mitchell, who as of today is clearly better than him as a player. I'm straight, but you're not. Because for you to be considered as a championship-caliber player and not just a known player in the league, You've got to continue to add things to your game. He refused to do so. So Doc's loyalty to his stars, even to a fault, and Ben's lack of ownership within himself to grow and evolve as an NBA player are the reasons why the Philadelphia 76ers are sitting at home. Now, Sixers have come out and said, we're going to keep Ben Simmons. We're going to keep him, and we're going to work on his game. That's fine. That's four years too late. And knowing Ben's character and his acumen Throughout this process of, I don't know, not developing his game, how am I supposed to believe that he's going to come back and has truly worked on those things to where he'll be a better player? I'll cut my losses now. I'll bite my lip now. I'll look myself in the mirror now and say I fluffed up, and I'm trading it to another team. Portland's an option. Cleveland's an option. Why do I sell those things? Portland right now has a C.J. McCollum and a Damian Lillard problem. That's going to get broached upon. Throughout the, set, throughout the podcast. They have that problem. So you can trade Ben Simmons for Damian Lillard. The Portland's is like, no, we're not going to trade Damian Lillard. We're going to continue to work out with him. Fine. Give me CJ McCollum. We'll give you Ben Simmons. And a first round pick. Cleveland. They have a Colin Sexton problem. Because him and Darius Garland don't coincide with each other very well on the basketball floor. As backcourt teammates. Trade Ben Simmons to Cleveland. For Colin Sexton. And Larry Nance and maybe a first-round pick. And I'm moving on because, for lack of a better terms, you can't survive in this modern-day NBA with your point guard not being able to shoot at least a jump shot 15 feet away from the basket. You can't do it. Can't do it. These guards today, combo guards, points that have an acumen to drop 30 on you in your sleep, if you sleep on their ability to put the ball through the hole, they get buckets consistently. Ben Simmons doesn't get buckets consistently that is a huge issue for Philly moving forward and I said this in Ben's second year in the league when they went to the playoffs and I think 2017 2018 and they beat Miami but they lost to Boston in I think five games since after that series they're not winning the championship if Ben Simmons doesn't develop a jump shot they're not getting out of the east unless Ben Simmons develops a jump shot and we're at this point where they couldn't even make it to the Eastern Conference Final for the first time in over two decades, because their best ball handler and decision maker on the floor can't shoot the basketball. Can't make this up. But despite all that, they should be there. There are more talented in Atlanta. And they had opportunities to grasp the bull by his horns that Atlanta, con- that Atlanta didn't have. As many opportunities that they had in Atlanta didn't. The difference was Atlanta executed down the stretch. Because they have a point guard, too, that can not only play make, but he can shoot slash score the darn ball when it matters. And that, my friends, is important. I think a lot of people don't talk about this position enough because we live in an era where for the last decade, we have the likes of LeBron James and Kevin Durant, who both are small forwards, who are ball handlers. But they're wing players and have dominated throughout their era. the point where they've led teams to championships so we're still in this mindset of you need a wing to be successful Giannis Antetokounmpo is another popular impactful wing that has gotten the bucks to two eastern conference finals in three years but for your team to take that next step for your team to be truly genuine as a championship contender you need a point guard that can set up the offense and then you need that point guard to hit open jumpers and open threes You don't have a point guard that does those three things? Say goodbye to a playoff run. The Milwaukee Bucks don't have a point guard. I think that will catch up to them sooner rather than later. They don't. The Los Angeles Clippers got Rajon Rondo to be their point guard. Now, he's been unplayable throughout the playoffs because teams have run zones and have basically limited Rondo's ability to go through the lane and make impacts through there as a playmaker and as a scorer. They've relegated Ronald to being a jump shooter. He's been hit or miss there. And Ty Lue's not playing around with that stuff. He's like, okay, if they're going to play zone, I'm going to put my more aggressive score, Reggie Jackson, and then bank on Reggie being able to set his teammates up just as effectively as he's able to put the ball through the basket. And it's worked for him. So the Clippers point guard conundrum that they've chalked up as we're going to run with Reggie because of his offensive efficiency. Well, not efficiency, but offensive productivity. Suns so have Chris Paul. Atlanta Estreon. Point guard play matters. It's like in the NFL, you need a competent quarterback to win a Super Bowl. I'm not saying your quarterback has to be all world like Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady. But if you can have a quarterback like Tom Brady was last year and just be a quality game manager that can execute on third downs, you have an opportunity to win the Lombardi. In the NBA, you don't need a John Morant. You don't need a Steph Curry. You don't need a crisp ball but if my ass can get oh bad, if i can get a tj mcconnell that's a start like a guy that can run my sets get my star player's quality looks be able to defend the other point guard serviceably and then when the shot clock breaks down and my star player drives and kicks it out to him he can make an open jump shot if he can do that we're good and that's The biggest thing I think teams need to realize is on the horizon moving forward, as these teams that are trash start to become relevant again in postseason and championship pictures, point guard play is going to be ever so prevalent. And that guard spot in the NBA has been somewhat neglected as, oh, kind of a luxury. Like, it's cool to have a dynamic guard, but those wings, though, you need a wing to be successful. In this new day and age in the NBA, quality point guard play is going to dictate how far you go and how far you fall now back to the teams that are still in the playoff picture let's go out west so it's been three games so far in the western conference finals between the phoenix suns and the la clippers and right now i feel personally both teams have a great opportunity to win the west the clippers should be up to one right now but they're not it's called basketball if they're not able to execute down the stretch And make free throws when they're given to you, then you deserve to lose. (laughs) Paul George, come on, man, gotta step up. Been trashed through three games. You gotta step up, Paul. You gotta step up. And he hasn't. But we're gonna get the Paul George. Ty Lue, though, as a coach, my opinion, best coach in the playoffs. In terms of adjusting on the fly, adjusting quarter by quarter, adjusting minute by minute stretch, he puts any lineup he can out on the floor to just see how effective are they against the opposing team's lineup that's on the floor currently? Just how effective are they? And I think he finally found the lineup that I think he might ride when it's crunch time throughout the rest of this series that could honestly dictate LA's first NBA Finals appearance in franchise history. The lineup where Paul George is at shooting guard, Reggie Jackson's the point, Zubox is the center, and Pat Bev. It's like a three guy that's basically guarding Devin Booker and other wings. And then you have Terrence Mann. That lineup right there that I just listed. Beverly has been a dog defensively to the point where he's neutralized Devin Booker throughout the playoffs, throughout the series, I might add. Terrence Mann is long enough and lengthy enough from a wingspan perspective where he gives Chris Paul somewhat of a deterrent. He might not have the lateral quickness to stay in front of him, but he has the length to make up for it. Zubach is banging with Aiton with so much ferocity on the glass that he kept Aiton off the rim as best as he could. He's somewhat not neutralized Aiton, but has matched his energy with his energy. And that's, that's going to go a long way. And then Reggie Jackson, he's going to continue to hit three-point shots, probe the lane and finish, catch and shoot very well, and playmake for others. They're in a good space. That lineup right there did the damage in the fourth quarter that allowed the Clippers to pull away that's the lineup I think Ty Lu saw worked in game three, and he's going to ride that way for the rest of the series and see where it lands. But this is an L.A. Clipper team coming into this series. I think we all thought, you no know, Kawhi Leonard, long-term, they have no chance. But through three games, through three games, they lost game one by six, they lost game two by three, and they won game three by double digits. They should have won game two. They won game three. Ty Luke can go to his players and be like, look, we can beat the Suns. And they can because the reason why they can beat the Suns are a few reasons. I'm going to give three. Three of the main ones. Number one, they have a guy in Patrick Beverly that, no, he can't stop Devin Booker, but he can make him work for every shot opportunity he gets now. Personal shout out to Patrick Beverly. Yo, he is that tenacity, that doggy dog world mentality that he has defensively works on the young cats. It worked against Donovan Mitchell, annoyed him to the point where he had him thinking about where he was, made some deflections, stole the ball, blocked some shots, and it's working against Devin Booker. He's got Devin Booker out of swords, out of wax. That's two games in a row. When I see a pattern, I got to acknowledge it. Two games in a row he's been in Devin Booker's space. He's been in Devin Booker's airspace, and he's been in his head two games. Now, it don't work against the OGs, like, Durant's like, dude, like, I'll just shoot over you. Curry's like, funny, uh, I'm going to just cross you up and shoot a three on you. LeBron, I'm going to bully you. But these young guys that rely on rhythm and pace of their game, and Devin Booker's really a rhythm-paced player, which is why I feel like he reminds me a lot more of Klay Thompson as a player than Kobe Bryant. Now, I'm not saying he plays like Klay. Doesn't shoot as well as Clay does. But they're both cerebral in a sense where when they get their shots in the flow of the offense and they get in the rhythm off of that, they're tough to beat. They're tough to guard. But if you're able to push them off through square, and make them work, get them off their spot, they're a little bit more vulnerable and susceptible to defensive tenacity. Now, what Devin Booker is going to have to do in this series, I think what he's probably going to have to work on moving forward, the great scores are effective even when the ball isn't in their hands. So if he utilizes the film study to understand that dynamic, then in game four, I expect him to move it the basketball with such precise fervor that he'll get quality looks that he deserves and I'll help open up the rest of the offense for the Suns. Because if him and Chris Paul just trade opportunities of handling the basketball at the top of the key, you're letting Beverly and the Clipper defense off the hook because I feel like the Clippers on ball defense, as the playoffs has gotten deeper and deeper every series, has improved. I just feel like in this series, they've done a better job off rip, intensifying that intensity, and the results are showcasing that it's worked. So he's going to have to play better about the basketball in his hands. He's got a point on a Chris Paul, that can set him up. That's huge. And then those wing players are They got to play better. Jay Crowder was not good. He fouled out only at nine points. Mikkel Bridges was hot and cold as a 3-in-the guy. And Aiton is going to have to, honestly, in my opinion, do a better job protecting the rim, and he's probably going to have to get Zubac in trouble because Zubac is the only guy that the Clippers have on their roster that gives Aiton problems around and underneath the basket. That's it. Cousins, is he can't jump and he's too old. And when they go small, Phoenix kills them with that because they have a point guard that will antagonize the mismatch to the point where they're going to get you out of that small ball lineup and you're going to have to match your bigness. And so that's a big thing the defense, obviously. Um, attacking the basket is another thing that's working for the Clippers. They finally went to the rack in game three because they realized I don't know why they didn't realize this early on DeAndre not a win protector. He's not, he's not a win protector has got great energy, great athleticism. He can run the floor for days. And that showcases all its legitimacy offensively, especially on the glass. But defensively, he's not the greatest. Rotator, kind of slow-footed, a little bit out of position at times. And he's hesitant to contest on some shots. So if you attack him, two things. One, high probability of making a shot because he's not going to block you most of the time. And then the other positive effect of it all is you can get him in foul trouble Phoenix does not have a backup big outside of to to take Aiden's spot and be just as productive they don't you know what I'm saying when Aiden is done he goes to the bench and they got the white Howard back there no it's Aiden and then once Aiden's in foul trouble or he's taking a rest Dario Saric comes in to play the five and Dario is a decent player, but I don't think he's effective in, at the five in this series because they attack him offensively, well, defensively, and then offensively, he's not making the threes. So if you're not spacing the floor and you're not holding your own, I think, effectively, have to honestly find creative ways to keep that big lineup on the floor, to where they can continue to have that advantage against the Clippers, or honestly, just get up watching foul trouble. Like the Clippers are gonna get eight in foul trouble, but yeah, affecting his on Booker attacking the basket is a big thing. And I think the last thing, honestly, and I've stated before, Ty lose willingness to make adjustments. He found the lineup of his dreams that I stated earlier in this segment. I think he's gonna continue to use, but. Every game's different, and I know eventually if Phoenix tracks the Patrick Beverly code, he may go back to trapping Booker. Who knows? But all that being said, the main reason why the Clippers have lost two of these three games in this series, Paul George has been anemic shooting the basketball, and I don't really get it because Paul George is playing like he has the KD Nets as his roster buddies. The Clippers are a very deep basketball team. You don't need nor have to take contested fall away jumpers lead in the shot clock, especially when you're winning or the game is in reach because you're down three or four points. Run offense, run motion concepts, move without the basketball. Take it to the rack. Put pressure on the refs to call foul calls as you pursue and win opportunities. Taking fallaway away jumpers isn't the wave. He did not shoot any better in game three. But double digit assist, rebounds, had to have court heaved and elevated his team's energy and momentum into the fourth quarter. He's got to play better for this team to win because if he continues having these poor shooting nights, I don't think the Clippers are going to beat the Suns. But if he starts to turn the quarter and improve, and a lot of that comes down to picking your spots a lot better than what he's done throughout the game, they should be fine. But I think both teams are in a good spot. The Clippers, yeah, they can actually make the finals without Kawhi Leonard honestly they can win the championship without Kawhi Leonard the way this current final four system is set up in the NBA all these teams are vulnerable the Milwaukee's bad coaching is always going to make this susceptible to get clipped in the postseason Atlanta as talented as they are their offense being so persistent on one talented player being their offensive initiator that puts them in a bind because what if he gets in foul trouble what if he gets hurt you don't have A supplement for Trey Young, not saying guy has to be Trey Young as a player, but you don't have that ball handling supplement that can keep that offense moving. Phoenix, as talented as they are, their second unit leaves a lot to be desired. And also, a big thing that no one's taking into account. And I'm going to say it again DeAndre Ayton's their guy at the five spot. But when they downsize, I don't think that's effective for their benefit the rest of this postseason, even if they beat the Clippers. If they play Milwaukee downsizing, I don't think it's going to work for them because Dario isn't hitting those pick-and-pop threes, and he's a liability defensively. And even if they play Atlanta, Atlanta's ness, like Phoenix is going to allow them when they go small for Dario to kind of have to guard on an island outside of the paint. I don't think he can do that either. So there's that. And then with the Clippers, Paul George's helter-skelterness offensively, and then, eventually, for their right, Ty Lu at times, over willingness to try every lineup. At times, he leaves some lineups out there a little bit too long that allowed a game to kind of blow up in their face. Had a couple times early on in the series where this lineup of Pat Bev, Rondo, and Lou Connard were all on the floor. And it was a liability because Rondo is an iffy shooter, and Lou Connard is a defensive liability. So... All of these teams have weaknesses within their roster on their staff that allows them to be susceptible to a postseason defeat, which goes back to my point that I wouldn't be surprised if the Clippers find a way to win it because they have a deep team, they have a coach willing to try anything, and they have different parties of players popping out of nowhere to assist with victories. The Trey Mann game in game six against Utah, the Pat Bev game in game three. Pat Bev was going to have a game of his own in game two because he was getting in Devin Booker's Grew so much, he drew a foul and forced turnover. So they have different entities coming out of their shells to play their roles to the highest level, to help this team get victories. That's really ever so important, and that's why it wouldn't be a shock for me that they did it. I think the Clippers are going to tie the series. They're going to go 2-2. Now we have a best of the three. LA in those setups, especially when they've been down 0-2, have been victorious throughout the postseason going down 0-2 has been a benefit for them instead of a death notice for a lot of other teams. So they're trying to become the first team probably really ever because they were the first team to be down 0-2 in back-to-back series in advance. They would be the first team in playoff history to be down 0-2 in every one of their conference series and go to the finals. Like there's been no team that's ever done that. So Phoenix has a work cut out for them. I think Chris Paul played a lot better. He didn't shoot very well. A lot of it has to do with him coming back into the lineup after his COVID scare. And so he'll play a lot better, but it's a pattern with D book. It's two games, so I until he shows me that he's cracked the code, I'm gonna assume that he's gonna have more of the same matchups in week we four. And I do think Zubots is a solid enough match with Aiden. It will help neutralize him to the best of his ability, where I don't see Aiden kind of dominating like he's shown flashes of not only in this series, but throughout the playoffs. Now in the East, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks game two tonight in Milwaukee. Let's talk about how game 1 went for the Hawks and it went great for them. Uh at one point, well, I want to start off by saying this before we go in depth on how that game turned out and what that means for the Bucks and the Hawks as we head into game 2. Did that game feel like a regular season matchup to you guys in the first half? Cuz I got those vibes. Like I really got those vibes. For like a half, I was kind of looking at the whole where the tempo of the game was and was honestly thinking hmm, this gives me a regular season feel. And I felt that placated to Atlanta's strength because it was going up-tempo. And that was the big question. You know, Milwaukee plays up-tempo too, but Atlanta really plays up-tempo because Trey Young controls the pace at a rate of supreme intensity, fervor, but it's so controlled and so smooth-like operating. Now, he has a moment where, It goes from smooth-like operator to erratic conductor. He'll jack up a deep three from 30 feet, and you're like, I don't know if that was the best way to execute that possession, but go for it, young man. It's worked out for you so far in this postseason. But the Pace placated to Atlanta's strengths because they have the guard play, the point guard play, to where they can operate like that and still get a quality shot. Milwaukee, they play that way, but they don't have the point guard play to where if that – up tempo styles cut off because teams get back in transition defensively. They can operate in the half court and get a and get it still a quality shot. They don't. I was saying this about the Milwaukee Bucks when they got Holiday, when they tried to get Bogdanovich and they failed because Bogdanovich is with the Hawks. I was like, look, that's cool. You got a perimeter defender in Holiday. that can get you fifteen to twenty. That's solid. That's something that I feel like they missed against the Miami Heat. I, I feel like all the moves they made or to beat the Miami Heat. You get the perimeter guy in Holiday. You get the corner defender and Tucker. So you can have a guard that can cut off their one of their shooters. And now you have a pack line defensive front that can wall off, bam out of from being effective, and Jimmy Butler's Jericho Jobs. That's why they swept those guys with utter ease. But, you know, in this series, unlike in that one for the Bucks, what if you go run right into a team – that's a point guard. Well, if you run into a team where they're able to stop your ability to get in transition, you need somebody that can operate in half court and get a quality shot for everyone. They don't have that because Drew Holly's a two, Middleton's a three. Giannis is honestly a four slash five hybrid that Max Grays has the three because, he's a, because of his elite athleticism. Now, when they run pick and roll with Middleton and Giannis, it's effective. And I feel like it's hard for defenses to kind of keep that honest because If you go under the screen, Minutic can pop you. If you go over it, Giannis has the athleticism to catch the ball and beat you to the rim in, like, one fluid motion. Like, it's it's lethal. And they can run those same concepts with Holiday as well. But when, like I said, defenders get back, they wall off the paint, and they stay home with the shooters, you need a point guard's ability to kind of weave through the crooks and nannies of it all defensively and still get a quality look. At the basket that wasn't pre planned in a play. They don't have that. And I always felt like when they kind of put together a team, I was just looking at it and was kind of thinking, where's the point guard? Drew Holiday's not the point guard, but everybody was telling me, no, Drew Holiday's the point guard. Drew Holiday will hold it down for the Bucks. He will run the one. I'm like, that's never been Drew Holiday's strength. Philadelphia tried that. But it got to a point where the last time Philadelphia was successful and they went to a conference semifinal and lost to the Celtics 8-7, guess who was running the offense? Andre Iguodala. When the New Orleans Pelicans had the immense amount of success they had by sweeping the Blazers and losing the five to the Golden State Warriors, who was running the point? Rajon Rondo. So all that we see in the playoffs is when a rubber honestly meets the road, Chris Middleton's running the point. He's setting the offense up, not just for himself. But for everybody else to get quality looks down the stretch, no. They probably should have went out of their way and pushed and campaigned harder for Chris Paul to come there. And I feel like they had way more asses than I thought Phoenix did to make that happen. Yeah, it probably would have made given up Dante DiVincenzo and Eric Bledsoe some picks. Would have had to do that. But you get Chris Paul and able to still get Drew Holiday, which they probably would have been able to do. Or maybe you're not able to get Drew Holiday. But let's say... Drew Holiday's replaced with Chris Paul. we thinking different because as the offense breaks down, we know Chris Paul's going to get a quality shot for himself or somebody else to keep that offense going. They don't have that. I think it's going to catch it to them sooner rather than later. I still have them winning the series in six, but this could be the series where it catches up to them. Now, let's go back to game one. Regular season feel, honestly, thought it paid huge dividends for Atlanta because that's kind of how they play their up-tempo team when they control the pace where it's going fast but it's going at a controlled fast rate that is proactive to their benefit because Trey Young is controlling the tempo he's dictating where he wants everything to kind of coincide with each other now third quarters where things intensify Young gets cooking shakes Young not shakes Young but shakes Holly out of his sneakers hits a three he's doing a shimmy and Giannis rallies up the truth and he's like look can't let this guy embarrass us get your pride up their pride does come up and both teams are going back and forth and you're thinking bucks are up eight on the four minute mark they can pull away with it but that's the misleading thing about the hawks you know you get up eight or ten against them in the fourth quarter you start thinking you start thinking we got them but they all, they make this last ditch run and then you blink twice and you're like, wow, we're down three with like 20 seconds left. We're gonna lose. And so they make a final ditch run led by Young's Floater, cornered through by John Collins to cut it to two. The put back by Capella. And then all of a sudden they win this game by three. They win it by three. And that's the Atlanta Hawks in a nutshell. Now, I want to give myself credit before we continue because I called this in one of my earlier episodes where I introduced all the NBA teams on my first independent Intel podcast episode where I said, Listen, Atlanta got Nate McMillan to be their head coach sooner rather than later. That's why he was on the staff. He got the gig, and no, I did not expect this team to be this successful, like get to the precipice of the NBA final. But I thought if he led the charge, they'd be a playoff team because he took Indiana to the playoffs. And I feel like Atlanta's roster kind of coincided with those earlier Pacer team rosters as well. into the East, don't make it. And they did. So, Having a coach kind of be honest with their star player in Trey Young, telling them, look, what you did under Lloyd Pierce, you kind of have to modify that and pick and choose certain spots where you can be Logo Young. But I'm going to need you for 80 or 90% of the game to be Trey Young, the point guard. And that helps. Controls the pace, involves the teammates better. Now we no longer hear John Collins saying Trey's hogging it. You no know, it feels like all these shooters that they have on the roster are – not fully maximizing their potential because they're barely getting touches on the wing when they're open. Trey Young's distributing, team's profiting off of that. They're being immensely successful. And down the stretch, they have a point guard who's now been held, not hostage, but he's now been held accountable for prior actions so he can be a better player today. And when the rubber meets the road and they need to run offense to get back in the game and to control the outcome in the clutch, he can do so and they get things done. So that was huge for them. Now, the Bucks wanted to touch base on a couple of things that I saw in the game that kind of met, had me like, are you sure you want to really do that moving forward? Giannis onto the Kumpo being a point forward. Well, let's talk about it right now. They did not do that against Miami, and they did not do that against Brooklyn. They always had Giannis five to 10 centimeters from the basket, and it helped, in my opinion, fully optimize their offensive ceiling because Giannis as 8.4 isn't effective. So for a few reasons. Yeah, he's improved as a passer, but when they wall off the paint and they stay home on the shooters, he doesn't have the consistent mid-range jump shot to at least keep the defense honest. So guys know three things where Giannis has the ball at the top of the key, especially under the 15 second shot clock mark. They know he's going to drive and kick. They know he's going to drive and charge. And I know he's going to pull up for a three. That, that's it. And honestly, in my opinion, a lot of times, all three of those options fail because the defense is ready for the latter two. And they're willing to give up the first one because he's not a consistent shooter. They're more effective when they don't play Giannis like LeBron, but they play him like Dwight. They play him like Minnesota KG. Have him on the block. Allow him to pass out of that. Allow him to take jump shots out of that that are way more close to the basket than a, than a settled three. And then everybody else offensive can play good off of that through backdoor cuts, curls to the three point line. Guys are going to have to double because it's Giannis. He's strong as heck. He can bully somebody underneath the basket and dunk on him. So you're going to bring doubles. And now that allows those three point opportunities to be even open. No, they let him run the point forward stuff really throughout the game until the last few minutes where they realized. Atlanta's going to follow him if he has the ball in his hands and we're down so we're going to put it in guys that can shoot free throws so Atlanta won't have that luxury but now what you're doing is you're taking away your most dominant impactful player away from the offensive scheme in the final few minutes of the basketball game that sucks that really sucks but that's what happens when your team isn't fully convinced that you can hit those free throws when it counts so I honestly think they did all of that because they didn't respect the Atlanta Hawks as a team. think they came out and ran, literally in my opinion, regular season concepts. And honestly thought, that's enough, we'll beat them. And they're only up four at the half. So I was kind of looking at it in a way where it's pretty prevalent and evident that it's a game Atlanta can win. They're right there. And the way this tempo and Florida game is kind of going, this completely coincides with what Atlanta profits off of the best especially during this postseason run controlling the pace at their own floor, led by the maestro known as Trey Young now I think the Bucks are gonna have to do some things that a lot of teams probably at the crib except the Knicks because the Knicks are so offensively compromised there's really nothing else they can do like if you can't stop Trey Young then you lose like that, that was their calling court defensively but I know Philly's at the crib wishing they didn't play like Philly and just play to win the series. And what I mean by that is when you play the Atlanta Hawks, you can't, mainly because teams aren't building themselves to beat the Hawks. Because no one expected the Hawks to be this far in the postseason. I think we all thought the Hawks in the regular season, we looked at the roster before the season started and we're thinking, they're a playoff team, but first round Essex. And as the season goes on, we're like, dang, they're not even a playoff team. So don't expect them to be there. They get there and they play the hot Knicks. The story of the year next, we're thinking, they've got the defense to shut down that the offense. Eh, it's Nate McMillan, who cares? And now they make a run. It's like, yo, these guys are nice. But I think the biggest thing that the competition looked at when they played the Hawks was, I think they didn't really start taking the Hawks serious until it was too late. And what I mean by that is, I think they acknowledged, yo, Trey Young's good. I think they acknowledged they needed to adjust the defense around slowing him down. But I don't think on the offensive end, they adjusted to how they needed to take the flow and pulse of the game by their own hands and made it towards their calling to where they control the tempo that is the complete opposite of Atlantis. So I say all that creative pontification analysis to basically say the Milwaukee Bucks need to play slow. But I don't know if they can because they haven't played slow all playoffs. They haven't played slow all season. And other Mike Boonhozer, they haven't played so throughout his tenure as their head coach. They're not a slow basketball team. They're up-tempo, and I know why they're up-tempo. They don't have a point guard. Giannis is a liability as a jump shooter. So you play up-tempo to maximize opportunities you can get on the scoreboard in transition. But in the playoffs, when guys do a very good job of getting back in transition, the game becomes a half-court chess match. And you have to be able to find an offensive continuity and productivity in that half-court chess match to be successful. But I think, honestly, in my opinion, this can be a huge benefit for the Bucks if they go slow and they play inside-out. If they establish Giannis on the block throughout, they'll be fine. But if they play like how they did in game one, point four Giannis trying to run with the Atlanta Hawks, this series might be over in five. Because I don't think they can win multiple games playing that way. To beat the Hawks, you got to trap Trey Young. They didn't do that at all. They tried to off – under coverage, drop coverage, whatever coverage they're running, trash. Didn't work. They didn't crash the glass either. John Collins had 15 boards. Capella almost had 20. You can't have two starters in Atlanta's front court dominate you on the glass. We have Giannis and Brooke Lopez. So Trap Young, Lopez has to play bigger than he has lately in this playoffs. He can't let guys out-rebound him in dualities. And last but not least, they got to slow the game down, and they got to run the offense through. Middleton and Giannis in pick and rolls and they got to feature and feed Giannis consistently on the block if they rebound better trap trade and slow the game down they can beat the Atlanta Hawks because they have the better roster but if they try to play Atlanta's speed Atlanta's place you're not going to beat them and I think that was the huge problem with the Warriors even before they got KD I think they were able to beat other teams without him because I think guys spent more time trying to play KD to Golden State's tempo, instead of looking at it as, okay, that's their established tempo, we got to make sure to get them out of that and play the opposite way. But I don't think a lot of teams, especially a lot of coaching staffs, want to kind of stray away from who they are because they look at it as, this is our identity, this is what I'm comfortable looking at, this is what I'm comfortable calling my plays, calling the game through that lens. So I don't care that the other team is profiting off that tempo. I want to stay in that tempo because that's all I know. But in reality, a great playoff coach adapts with the ebbs and flows of a series so you may come into the playoffs thinking we're the best shooting team in basketball we're great at pace we love eating in transition but in the postseason you may be forced to do something that you're not customarily known of doing and you can't just look at that as honest oh, since we don't do that a lot i going not gonna even entertain it acknowledge that hey there may be a game where we get out of cover zone and we lose but now I said, okay, this is how they're going to play us. This is how we got to attack how they play us. Use them forcing us to play a certain way to our advantage. Coaches don't do that. Well, I know for sure Bud doesn't do that consistently. And this is where we are with the Bucks. They're the most talented roster left in the playoffs. And it just doesn't feel like they're locked to win a championship. I mean, it should be. It should be. But I, I, I don't feel the lock because Boonehoser, has a huge track record of living and dying by his thematic principles, offensively, and defensively, going to play up-tempo. We're going to play outside-in. And defensively, we'll not fully use our only to our advantage because we might get out-rebound. We might not contest good, but we're just going to live with guys beating our best on-ball guard defender off the dribble. And then if he does and cooks us, so be it. If he doesn't, we're good. I think the worst thing that could have happened to the Bucs was they beat Brooklyn playing how they've played the past few playoffs. And what I mean by that is they play up-tempo, they play outside-in. And the fortunate thing about it was when they played Brooklyn, it was KD versus the Bucks, And Drew Holiday and Chris Wilson caught fire down the stretch when it mattered. But if they continue to shoot bricks to end the game, they weren't going to win that series. And so you just wonder, they got this four-point Bucks way. Can they or are they willing to be like, "Look, well, this is going to work, and change their philosophy before it's too late? before it's too late I mean, that's something honestly i think players need to ask themselves you know not just players but i think that's just what the team needs to ask themselves as well do we need to switch up to win I, I think for sure yeah you're gonna have to switch up to win for sure i don't want to think there's no doubt about that at all now during this stretch of great, great NBA basketball, the mock draft, not the mock draft. I have a mock draft, though, up on Intel Podcast Instagram page at Intel Pod on IG. Check it out. 441 followers, closing in on 500 followers. Should we get 500 followers? Honestly, probably not by the end of July, June, but by sure mid to late July. That's going to happen. You can book it. But the NBA draft lottery happened. And the top five teams picking you know, are the Detroit Pistons, Houston Rockets, Cleveland Cavaliers, Toronto Raptors, and the Orlando Magic. Now, when I talk about the guy that lost this lottery. um, Oklahoma City, all those picks. You know, to run your joke on social media is, man, Oklahoma City's future is going to hinge on a sixth grader. It's funny. But you know what's not funny? Having all those picks and not getting the top five in the lottery. And this hurts because I feel like this was a draft where they get into the top five, well, top three, obviously, is where you want to go. But they're not picking in the top three. They're not picking in the top five. They're picking seven. And, yeah, they can have the opportunity where they could package a lot of picks and trade up to the top three. But I know for sure Detroit and Houston are trading down. I know Detroit's saying they're open to trading down. That's cap. I know Houston's saying he might entertain trading down or might entertain taking somebody else with Evan Mobley. K. Okay, Cunningham and Evan Mobley are locks. I don't know why these guys on the internet are talking like they're not locks. I don't know if it's because they have a favorite player in this draft class that they would want on their team that is opposite of the consensus of where they're gonna fall. But I think saying that saying right now, June 25th, when the draft's gonna be in July, I think confidently saying Detroit's gonna pick K, Houston's gonna pick Mowgli, and Cleveland's gonna pick Jalen Green, I don't think that's really a hot take. I think I'm saying that it's June 25th. By the time the draft rolls around in late July, that's what the draft board is going to be. And we're just going to move on with our lives. And that's how it's going to be. Now, hopefully during that time, probably the day after the draft, I'll have Hoop Intellect, who's was one of my last prior guests on the podcast. And I have him on to talk about the recap of the draft, who went where, perfect fits, which team uh, had the best draft selection, which team reached, which team picked a sleeper, all those things like that. I'm locked in on his draft class. It's probably the, most I've been locked in on any draft class in pro sports in my life. I'm invested, I'm involved. All these guys that I have on my mock draft currently that's on the at Intel podcast IG page, I know. And I want to break them down. So I want to break down the top five that I have on my mocks. So Detroit had the opportunity to pick first. Good for them. Cade Cunningham going there, I think is a no brainer. Now, it doesn't surprise me that Detroit is contemplating Training out because the organization had a love affair for Killian Hayes, the point guard from France. Now he didn't pan out his rookie season because he was hurt most of the year with a messed up hip. He was able to come back late in the year and played. I, I really didn't expect that. We tore his hip early in the year. They're gonna shut him down. That's all she wrote. But they allowed him to come back and play when he was fully healthy. Probably to see what they have in him. He Was a little bit up and down when he came back, but signs are by the fan base and by the front office that he has what it takes to be a solid point guard for them now Cade Cunningham if they take him is a point guard at heart but he's more of a Luka Doncic type player with a high defensive ability but because of that he can play the wing he can play the two he can play the one he can play all over the floor so can Cade and Killian coexist with each other only time will tell but I can understand them like well we'll trade down because we like our point guard that we have but another thing for Detroit great solid core great solid core indeed Dwayne Casey if he can do one thing he can develop young talent and they hit home with Sadiq Bey and Isaiah Stewart they really hit home with Sadiq Bey who I loved coming out of Villanova at the time Villanova man they've produced some quality pros the last few years Dante DiVincenzo Josh Hart Sadiq Bey and Mikkel Bridges like they've been solid they've been solid huge and Sadiq Bay, he gotta get to three you can defend uh, I think an underrated two-way player that can develop into something, kind of a tweener that's effective. Maybe if his game fully rounds out. He could be a Tobias Harris type player. I think that's a plus for Detroit. And then Isaiah Stewart, even though he continued to be players punching bags at the rim because he stayed in dunked on. Double-double machine. I like his energy. I like his after blocking shots. Reminds me of a young Ben Wallace, which is great because he plays with the Pistons, young Ben Wallace, Ben Wallace capabilities. And so Killing Hayes is able to kind of further progress as a player you add K to the mix. I have no problem when the season rolls around picking Detroit Pistons as an AC in the East or a playing team. I don't. Because I think this Detroit Pistons team has a chance to be much better than what they were last year by four. And now that Casey has nice core players that's talented, that he believes in, that he can continue to develop it to the fullest potential. The Pistons have a great opportunity of making a playoff push. I don't think that's a reach. Now, number two, Rockets. Evan Mobley, I know guys are like, do they need Evan Mobley? They have Christian Wood, and I would love to see a Jalen Green, Kevin Porter backcourt. Look, I'm be honest. Christian Wood's cool. I think he's a poor man, Siakam, in my opinion. Probably a little bit more athletic than Siakam. Probably plays a little bit more bigger than Siakam because he doesn't mind banging inside. But Evan Mobley has the potential of being an Anthony Davis type of player. In my opinion, Evan Mobley's the best player in the draft. So you don't let the best player in the draft not go on your team because you think, no offense to Christian Wood, former G-leaguer, you think a G-leaguer who has immense upside now can be better than him. And that's the only reason why you would make that choice. And honestly, I feel like Green coinciding with Porter is not a good fit because they both are guys that obviously need the ball to be effective. But they both like to score. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think that's effective. I think the Rockies should just start formulating a roster around their young talent moving forward i don't think they need to take the cleveland approach and pick guys that kind of do the same thing on some like oh they're talented it'd be fun to watch on the court like you need to create a cohesive team that can translate into a legitimate western conference contender in the next five to ten years you're in a rebuilding stage can't miss take Mobley, and if you feel like Mobley and wood can't coexist alongside each other trade wood for something and go from there but i like porter jr Deshaun tate was a second-team all-rookie. Um, he's a solid player. I like uh, K.M. Martin Jr. I like his energy. Get your Mobley. Build around that little young core and go from there. I Don't take Jalen Green at two. And I don't I don't expect Detroit or Houston to kind of deviate from the consensus. I think they're going to take the best player available on their board. Now, the draft does heat up at three, in my opinion, the Cavs. And I say heats up with the Cavs because they're in a tricky spot. They've acknowledged. they let the world know Colin Sexton is going to get traded. And Colin Sexton, kudos to him, coming to the lead. I thought he'd be Eric Bledsoe, and he's better than Eric Bledsoe. He could score. He improved his game. Sus- Suspect jump shot was av- evident early on in his young career, and he's improved on that to where he's a 24-point game scorer. And I feel like there's a team if they need a two-guard, they need a point. Philly, in, in my eyes, perfect spot personally. Whoever needs a guard that can fill it up, he'd be a solid landing spot there. And they could get some acquiescible compensation behind them. If they do that, I would believe they take Jalen Green. I feel like Jalen Green alongside Carlin is a much better fit. I like Jalen Green a lot. Now, he's going to probably have to play off the ball a little bit more than he's been accustomed to throughout his career. Is he willing to do that? We'll see. I do think his jump shot form is a little bit weird, but it goes in. But he's got nuclear athleticism, and he can get to wherever he wants to on the floor and get a good shot. So when I looked at him play, I saw Levine. But the athleticism is so insane. You see Vince Carter. So those are things that you can't ignore. He's got amazing upside as an on-ball defender because of his measurables. But right now, he's got amazing ability as a scorer. I don't think that's something you can bypass. Now, Toronto at four, a lot of people are saying Jalen Suggs, I don't see Jalen Suggs, and here is why. The Toronto Raptors took Malachi Flynn in the first round, traded for a Gary Jr. Fred Van Vliet is in the early parts of his extension. They probably won't re-sign Kyle Lowry, but even if Kyle Lowry's going, they have three guards that will get a major PT. I don't think they go after a guard, man. I think they go after a wing. OG Ananobi's contract is coming up. I don't think they'll be able to re-sign him when he hits the open market. That's valid. Maybe they, maybe they might be able to use the restricted free agent. They have his bird rights. They, they probably can't. But if they're willing to let him walk, you need to have somebody backing him up that makes letting OG walk sensible. And says Masai Ujiri has a history of drafting players of African descent, and I ain't mad at him. Pan-Africanism all the way, my brother. Jonathan Kaminga makes the most sense. Now, Hooping and Leg, my guy, made a video about Jonathan Kaminga on his YouTube channel. He says, Kaminga reminds me a lot of OG on And That's exactly what I think the Raptors are gonna go for. They're gonna go for a wing replacement. Now, Kaminga, I look at his game. It's it's a it's a typical game of a slasher. Uh He can go both ways, finish both ways, there's that. But when I look at his shot, his shooting form reminds me a lot of Jason Tatum. So. His shot isn't broken, it's fluid. It's all about consistency. If he can consistently knock down a jump shot, he's an all star. Now, the defensive capabilities that people are raving about a lot of that's based upon his measurables, his athleticism, and his shape. But he's flat footed, he doesn't rotate very well in his team defensive concepts, and it's not He's got some great help box. Not surprised a lot of athletes have those, especially if you can get up. But his defensive capabilities need work. I'm pretty sure Nurse and that staff are going to do a great job kind of making him adjust to that. But he's a shot away from being an all-star. He's 6'8", can slash both ways, finish with both hands, and he can score a little bit on the post. He just needs a consistent three-point shot, tightening up that handle. And who can stop Kaminga? I just feel like Kaminga's ceiling is a lot higher than Suggs. I think whoever gets Suggs is going to get a player that can come into play now. But Kaminga... Is a guy coming out of his recruiting class before he went to the G League. I think he was a number of players in recruiting class. So he the talent is there. And I see him playing on the TV, You see it. So you get a jump shot. That's consistent. and But it's tough to just say that and just be like, they're going to get it because players throughout their careers, Giannis, for starters, you said that about him. They jump shot away. And then they never get that jump shot. And we're like, well, they're talented, but they'd be even more ungodly if they had it. So I expect Camillo to work on his game. I think Masako's African. I just feel like they need they have. I don't think they need enough guard to sign him. I think Malachi's gonna get more minutes. Don't get a guard. Get you a guy that you could flip as a wing and he can manifest into an all-star caliber player. Toronto gets an all-star caliber wing. And Cominga, that's a dub. That's something to consider. And that's something to benefit from moving forward. Last. Out of the top five, a taking Jalen Suggs. Magic also have a surplus of guards, but their guard situation is a lot more, how do I put it, lost and foundish than Toronto's. And let me explain the lost and foundish concept. Markelle Fultz got a contract of a second unit point guard. Plus, he's coming off of a torn ACL. So even if he does come back fully 100%, it's probably going to have to take bench minutes anyway to get back up to speed. And I think at this point, his career with Fultz, he's proven he can play in this league. He won't be in China somewhere trying to find his way back like campaign did. But he'll probably never be a starter because his jump shot is so iffy. So move Fultz to the bench. And now you can have a backcourt of Cole Anthony and Jalen Suggs. Anthony can run your one. Suggs could be your two. Or maybe Suggs can be your one. Anthony can be your two. R.J. Hampton has the athleticism, the capability to be a small ball wing or come off the bench. And I think go from there. Obviously, if Suggs isn't there, coming it would probably make the most sense. I think they're going to go wing and they're going to go backcourt. Their guard situation is kind of a mixed bag. Their wing situation is not any better. But I like Okiki. I think they do, too. He's somebody that can play the three or the four. Jonathan Isaac is eventually going to come back. But injuries at the wing and guard spots makes both of those options Enticing for the magic to choose if Toronto does decide to go coming it. I see Orlando going sucks. Now six through ten for at these fits. I I prob- probably think Orlando and the Orleans might be reaches for sure. Even though the ones came out and have acknowledged they interest in getting a the guard, they're gonna need guards because Hart's not coming back and Lonzo's not coming back, so they're gonna need guard depth outside of Kyrie Jones. So I think Davion Mitchell, out of those, all those guards like that have been taken, he would be, according to my mock draft, he would be what? He's got a green, he's one. He would be the second guard taken. No, he's a third guard taken after sucks. Yeah, I feel like Davion is probably the third best guard in the draft. He reminds me a lot of Marky Smart. He could just shoot better and he's probably a better playmaker than Smart was coming into the league. So that's immense. Now, a lot of people feel like if he continues to develop his offensive game, he could elevate into a Donovan Mitchell type player. And if that happens, that's a huge steal for whoever gets him. But I like both of Baylor's guards. I like Jared and I like Davion Mitchell. I feel like they can play at the pro level day one, whenever they can play. They're players, players. So I think New Orleans taking Mitchell at 10 if he's there. Makes the most sense at the guard spot. I had Jalen Johnson kind of going to Orlando. I don't know if Jalen Johnson's or Orlando's type of player. Orlando, they really like athletic, long, and angular prospects, especially in the front court. John athletic, who is somebody that I could see them getting. Or if Scottie Morris falls to them, I could see them getting a Scotty Morris type player. I had Sacramento taking Kai Jones because when I saw Kai Jones, well, you know what I thought of? I know, I know my man Hoopin, and like I said, he saw Pascal Siakam a little bit. I saw Rashawn Holmes. Like, literally, he could come in and be Rashawn Holmes type player day one since the Kings are going to probably not be able to re-sign Rashawn Holmes as their center and have the chance of losing Marvin Bagley because he's coming out saying he wants to get traded. Taking Kai would make the most sense. The issue is, are the Kings going to keep the pick? I, I don't think Sacramento's in a position to just trade the pick. I understand the trade of the pick will be to further fortify a roster that they feel is closer to the playoffs than any other Kings roster since the last time they've been in the postseason, which was in 07. But when you're a team like Sacramento that hasn't been to the president forever, you need your picks, not just to fortify your roster, but you can also use these selections as trade bait down the line to get veterans that can fortify your roster. I say keep the ninth pick. If Kai Jones is there, take him. He would be a great small ball five or playable four because he has promising ability to stretch the floor over time with the likes of point guards Halliburton and Aaron Fox. That's me. Now, the best wing in the draft, second best wing in the draft, well, they're saying second best, best. There's three quality wings in the draft. Kaminga, I think, has immense upside because he's a jump shot away. He can put the ball on the floor and finish both ways. He could score on the block. He's insanely athletic. For sure. He's got it. I think Moses Moody is probably the most NBA ready because he can play without the basketball effectively. And he's a great cutter too. It's coinciding in being able to play without the basketball effectively. And a lot of that is because he can shoot the rock at a proficient rate. And I feel like Moody to Golden State just makes the most sense. That's it. Golden State's at a point where They feel like they have a three-year window to win a championship, at least one championship. So I think these next two draft picks that they're going to make to Lowry, I don't think they're going to keep both of them. I think they might trade one of them just to trade down for some depth. But I think the first one they get at seven, they're going to pick a guy that that can come in and play right away, whether that's start or come off the bench and be a quality minute guy. And I think Moses Moody makes the most sense. Scotty Barnes would be hella enticing. I don't think he'll fall there. but but Moody just makes the most sense because he's a Golden State type player. Moves out the basketball phenomenally, and he can shoot. And he has the ability, in my opinion, to be solid off the bounce. Now, his finishing ability around the racks is a little bit hit or miss. He's not consistent there. But when I saw Moses play, he reminds me a lot of Rip Hamilton and his ability to be able to use screens and whatnot to kind of get into his spots and take quality looks and make them. And you, they need a Harrison Barnes type guy that can kind of get their offense within the flow. I just feel like his ceiling's a lot higher than Barnes because I think he's a more smoother, cerebral offensive player than Barnes ever was when he came out of North Carolina. Barnes kind of had to develop into that over time. So that's just my take on it. And you know, Thunder, if they don't, if they're not able to trade up, I think Scotty Barnes makes the most sense. Coming into the draft process, he was labeled at 6'9". Come to find out after the combine, he's really six seven. He has insane wingspan. It's like 7'3. His hustle, his speed from floor to floor is phenomenal. He's a defensive menace. And he can score a little bit in the mid range, too. He's not that bad. But NBA is still NBA. Once you get that jump shot, it widens your value. If you don't have a jump shot, it kind of limits it. He gets a quality jumper, in my opinion. You're getting a more athletic. More ferocious than Kelly O'Brien. and for an Oklahoma City team, they probably wanted Evan Mobley because look how they clicked the roster. Let go of Horford, let go of Moses Brown. I thought that was kind of mistakes because you can't control where the balls fall. So if you're shoving everything out of your roster, thinking I'm gonna get Mobley, you better hope the pinball, pinball, the ping pong, pinball, the ping pong ball falls your way. It didn't. I probably kept Moses, but if they stay put because Houston doesn't want to pivot off the second pick. To take Mowgli, um, I think Barnes is a guy that plays. He's more of a plug-in, plug-and-play player from day one than pokoshevsky was. Bigger than Pokerchevsky, more athletic than pokoshevsky I think is probably the better basketball player because of his offensive duality. But I could see them. Pokerchevsky's like almost seven feet. I could see them day one, back quarter of Shea and Lou, Barnes, pokoshevsky and then whoever they try to manifest as the five. It's not a bad team, but I'm pretty sure Oklahoma City kind of garnered their accumulation of immense draft picks. They thought they could get one franchise player to coincide with their solid young pieces. Now, we'll see. Houston, man, they're talking like, you know, Detroit, too. Like, they're talking like, look, we know the guys that were slated to pick are great, but we're interested in those others. Houston's really interested in Jalen Green, So, If Oklahoma City feels like – if Oklahoma City and Houston feel like they can trade with each other and still get the guy that they want, then I think it will happen. If they don't feel like they can get the guy that they want, if they trade, to get out. I don't don't really see those top three teams trading. I don't see Cleveland trading out. I don't see – Houston trade now. I don't see Detroit trade. I think they're going to pick those guys, and then the crumbs are going to be the crumbs for everyone else, which means you got to pick wisely, pick proficiently for sure. I think that's going to be the big thing as well. But that's the 2021 NBA mock draft for independent Intel. That's my mock draft right now. It's early. I think as time moves on, we're going to manifest and see who's who. Other guys that weren't on there that I liked a lot, I like Trey Mann a lot from Florida. He gives me a lot of Kimball Walker. D'Angelo Russell type vibes, he's smooth with it, man. He's a three-level scorer. He's got amazing uh, agility. He can get to wherever he wants to. You just wonder, can he playmake for others? I think mean, that's a big thing with Trey man. Uh Cam Thomas from LSU is a bucket getter, but he's not a great playmaker. And a lot of his buckets are very tough. And I think a lot of it is because he takes a lot of tough, bad shots. And we have been such a gunner slash scorer all your high school collegiate career, can you adapt to a modified role in the NBA where you're going to be expected to do more than just score, until you build up enough equity where guys can feel like, "Oh, fans are professional score. You're gonna come out here and get buckets." And, you no, know, Josh Giddy's cool. You know, uh, Josh Giddey's probably the best international prospect out there. It's a cool player, in my opinion. Uh, I think with him, though, it's one of those things where you just wonder. Defensive liability for sure and not a lot of offensive creativity at all. Like, the crossover, he doesn't really shake anybody. A lot of his game is just predicated off of playmaking for others, and a half-court and transition, and they kind of just position himself on drive to kind of get to where he needs to go to finish. Reminds me a lot of Manu Ginogli, and that's cool. I think if everybody's able to have a redraft when Manu ever got picked where he got picked, he would be a lottery type selection, but if you're expecting to get Giddy to be like a game changer, no. I think Giddy would probably work better on a team like um, maybe Golden State. Like Golden State with their 14th pick, got a Giddy who could come off the bench and give them quality minutes. That would be solid. I don't think he'd fit for like a Orlando where, you know, Orlando has a lot of young talents. They might expect him like, yo, you're on Orlando. You got to get stuff done. So I don't know. Like, I, I think that's personally my take there. And Usman Garuba, Usman Garuba, I saw him play a little bit. Um, I hope in my video, I like him a lot. I think obviously he's got to get a consistent jumper. I think he's small ball five for sure. So I think if you get him, he's got to be played in a specific role. And the way he plays reminds me a lot of, like a Boston Celtic type player. <laughs> Remember that showing you Obaselli, you know those guys playing small ball. just this you know, grinding and grappling it up. He's, he's a small ball type big. I like him a lot. But I think this is a draft where I think you're going to get a lot of quality players. I think obviously your top three is your top three. I think your top three going to be all-stars, all-NBA players for sure. I think so. It's going to be quality pro. But I think after that, you can find him as value. If Scotty Warren is able to put it all together, you're getting a Kelly Oubre type player, that's not bad. And if Davion Mitchell is able to advance his game like he has from when he was at Auburn to where – he kind of became at Baylor. He can become that Donovan Mitchell type player with defensive ability. So it's just all about preferences and whatnot. A lot of these guys have a immense upside. So you're gonna have to kind of continue to elevate their game so they can coincide with your vision for the minutes for the team. But they're in a good spot for sure. I think that's something that can't be denied. You know, it's just well, things that can't. Now, when it's keeping it on the NBA front, a couple of things have happened. Before we wrap up Independent Intel uh, and call it a day during the Eastern Conference Finals. Whew. It's a little stuffy where I'm at, man. A little hot. Uh shit, I just swept off sweat off my head. Um, so Indiana and Dallas coaching changes. For sure. Um, let's we'll start with Indiana. They got Dallas' as ex-coach, Rick Carlisle. He's a pacer now, he's a pacer head coach, he was a part of Larry Bird's staff when he was coaching Indiana in the early 2000s. So with Rick, I'll say this about Carlisle and the Pacers. You know, the Atlanta Hawks success story is gonna have a lot of people in the East that were on Atlanta's level early this year and even last year think, well sheesh, we got just as talented, if not a more talented roster than the Hawks. If we get a competent coach with experience like Nate McMillan treads on the tire, we can elevate our team to success as well. And I think that's what Indiana's doing with Ricardo Now, for Ricardo's sake, it's a blessing that this is the job he's coaching that because it's a job in my opinion, that Cohen starts with his vision probably defensively and offensively. Like offensively, he wants a little bit more man movement, ball movement. And I think defensively he wants to have the, the creativity and the ability to be ingenious with his defensive schematics and whatnot. Wasn't really able to do that in Dallas because Perzingis' back was compromised. And Luke is not defending a tree. So it's just really so much you can do defensively, which is why they had to pull out the zone against the Clippers. And it worked until the Clippers finally started knocking out threes and it didn't work anymore. Against Indiana, you got Miles Turner, an all world rim protector. Malcolm Brogdon is an underrated two way player. TJ McConnell is a dog as a two way player. TJ Warren has the intangibles to be solid. And yeah, Savonis probably isn't the best defender, but. He tries. So they have, in my opinion, the most underrated roster in the East. They don't have a lot of guys that wow you, but Miles Turner, Malcolm Brogdon, and Karis O'Vert are solid building blocks. Now, I think they're gonna have to make a decision on a few things. Big one is what is Miles Turner's future with the team? Um, there's a point where they lost in the play-in, and I think people all expected Miles Turner's gone probably going to get traded to Boston. He almost got traded to Boston early in the season. I think people are thinking, you know, Charlotte is an option. But Carlo comes on the press conference and says, Miles Turner has the ability to be a success story. He is the prototypical modern NBA big. Stretch the floor and protect the rim. So I think he gets a four-year deal. This Indiana roster and this complete construction is going to stay together for at least two more seasons. I think these next two seasons, the fan base is going to see what this roster can truly be under modified and experienced coaching there was fallout with mcmillan and more because i don't think the players vibe with him. we'll see what they vibe with him, even more dominating presence such as rick Carlisle, but that's the big thing and then another thing is what is carol versus role going to be i think at this point in his career he's probably cut best at coming off the bench but if he's going to come off the bench then that means you got to get rid of your slow press of guards that are also going to come off the bench I think you gotta trade Jeremy Lamb. I think O'Shea Brissett is cool, but I think he's a guy probably best at moving him to the wing, and that's, that's fine. But you can't have LeVert and Lamb on your team. I I don't I don't think you can really do it. So I expect them to probably get rid of La- Lamb and have LeVert be their like six man energy money. Um they got amazing depth in the front court. Uh they've got solid guard play, I think, in my opinion. I think holiday is gonna be that second unit point. I think Justin Ali is going to stay on the team as well. They have the shooters. They have the team. They just need to see what Will role is going to be on the squad. Is he going to be a six-man or a starter? I think, for Carlisle's sake, he'll probably be a six-man. And then I think, honestly, I think they need a point guard. and I, They need a point guard. And if I'm them, I didn't know T.J. McConnell was a free agent. I'm resigning TJ McConnell and I think they'll be able to do so at a nice budget. And once I resign him, he's going to start alongside Brogdon because I don't think Brogdon is going to, I don't think Brogdon's at his best when he's having to be the primary decision-maker for that team. Let that be McConnell. who I think at this point is has Establish himself as a solid defender and a solid offensive conductor and then allow Brogdon to play off ball at the two alongside, inefficient but proficient TJ Warren and now you got a starting line of a McConnell, Brogdon, Warren, Turner, Sabonis and yeah I'm gonna be honest it doesn't sound amazing but when you look at the Atlanta roster of Trey Young, Kevin Nerder, Boyan Bogdanovich, Bogdan Bogdanovich my bad, John Collins and Clint Capella I mean we weren't thinking wow that's gonna kill him we all know Trey Young's a star we know Clint Capella's solid we know John Collins is a nice young talent. We know Boyan was underrated. Bogdan Boganovich was underrated. But like I said, they roster kind of similar to Indiana's. Indiana, man, they got a lot of guys on their team that have two or one more year left their contracts. And breaking Carlton establishes that they want to go back to being a relevant factor in the East. And before they got hurt, a lot of Indian fans saying, yo, we're fourth and fifth in the East. So point guard play, Turner's held huge establishing some type of continuity off the bench. It wouldn't hurt for Calvert to kind of resume that role. Hopefully Warren can come back healthy. I think you're going to have to pivot from the plethora regards that they have. But getting Carl meant that this team is trying to be a playoff contender moving forward. And they got the pieces to do so. And who would have thought? Man, we've been here since LeBron was here. East weakest, is, is heck. Horrible. But these last three years, the East has improved overall. Toronto won a championship. Miami made the finals, and Atlanta or Milwaukee might make it. and So comp has gotten better, and I wouldn't be surprised in the next five to ten years we're looking at, at the East as the best conference and the West as the worst because the East has been so trash that they're continuing to stockpile on the nice talent, nice talent, nice talent, and now guys are building something. We know what Milwaukee and Philadelphia represent. We know what Boston represents when they get competent point guard play, but we know what Taylor and Brown are about. Miami, they got to kind of clear up their miscues as a team, but they solid. New York built something, but I think New York might regress to the means, especially with Detroit adding better talent. Um, I think Charlotte's going to get better. I think Indiana with a better coach is going to get better. And we didn't even bring up Toronto. They didn't even make the playoffs. So I expect them to be better, especially with that fourth pick and then being able to play in Toronto. So the East, man, it's going to be a dogfight moving forward. So I appreciate – Indiana embracing that they want to be a part of that smoke. But it's just going to be interesting to see, is Carla going to elevate them to where they as a franchise probably feel like they should be. And then last but not least, Dallas. Jason Kidd is the head coach. You know, Jason Kidd passed the point coaching the Blazers. I was like, nah, man, I ain't coaching the Blazers. I'm going to coach the Mavericks with Luca. Here's my take on all that, man. I'm going to be honest. Here's my take. Here's my take, man. Look, Luca, a great player, but Jason as a coach, forget about it. He's not a good head coach. Let's look at his track record. Brooklyn Nets. That big three, whatever it was. Yeah, they made it to a conference semis, but disappointed, and then they flamed out, and then he was let go. He came in to Milwaukee to make them into, like, a playoff contender build something, and I'm going to be honest. He – was a huge part of embracing Giannis into what he could be. He was like, Look, well, Giannis, you could be our best player. I'm gonna let you run the point. And it helped. He also kind of messed up Giannis's jump shot on top of another day. He embraced Giannis's raw abilities as abilities nonetheless and said, You're gonna take us there. But when it got to the playoffs, they couldn't get out the first round. So the thing with kid is it's this, man. It's this with Jason, bro. I think he is a relatable figure that is revered and respected in coaching circles which allows him to get opportunities like this one this will be his third coaching gig in his career but i don't think he's an x's and o's guy and i don't think his relatability fully translates to the team being successful his relatability will translate with his star player i'm making a star player believe i can do this so Obviously, they got a kid to kind of relate and connect with Luca. And if a kid can drill into Luca, look, the best way for us to win is you're to be more of a point guard and score, fine. I think that'll help this team a lot. But is he going to find creative ways to get Porzingis' touches? No, I don't really think so. Is he going to preach to the defense the importance of, hey, preach to the Mavericks the importance of defense? Probably not. And kid can only do so much. So are they going to create a roster around Luca to where they can get better? I don't think so. Look, man, Dallas is what it is. I don't expect kid to last more than two years. I don't. And they're on a clock because Luke is a very competitive individual who wants to win. So if in this two-year spin, they don't get out of the first round, he's gone. Heck, if they don't even get to the playoffs, he's gone. I don't believe in Jason Kidd. I don't believe in Jason Kidd at all. And Dallas is literally putting the keys into his hand and saying, take us and our star player to the promised land. I don't really believe it. And then last but not least, Damian Lillard. Yo, Dame, I hear you, brother. I hear you. You're complaining. You're upset. You're like, man, I ain't winning nothing. I ain't winning no chips. I need to get out of here. And I I, I get it. Well, here's the problem, Dan. You left four years too late, buddy. You left four years too late. And now you complaining about they, they don't want to do nothing for me. was are you like? I'm loyal to the soil. I'm never trying to form no super team. Now you realize nobody's going to remember me until I win a championship. Duh, that's the name of the game. It's the name of the game. So Dame, I don't blame Dame wanting to leave. I appreciate Dame realizing that his legacy won't be remembered upon the pantheon of legends if he don't win a chip but i just feel like it's four years too late and if somebody really cared about him and was in his corner they would have told him when the team got swept by the pelicans you gotta dip but he stayed and then they had that misleading western conference finals one that wasn't really them they just lucked up because paul Jordan had a bum shoulder westbrook embraced his non-defensive efforts in his career he embraced early by not really guarding Dame consistently. Denver was young and inexperienced. And Golden State, though they got swept, it was really close games that they got slept, swept. But then the next year we saw they didn't get out the first round twice. So this is Portland, man. If they do get out of the first round they lose in the second, and, but there's a high chance that they won't get out the first round unless the team that they're playing sabotages itself with injuries or just bad play. So they're not that good. They haven't been that good for a while. But this one hurts the most because this is their most talented team on their stats, in my opinion, in a while. And it couldn't be the different Nuggets team that had no Jamal Murray. So, Dan, I'm surprised you out. But I'm just like, just say it. You're going to have to basically be what you said you weren't going to be. I'm malcontent for a ring. That's basically what he was saying. I'm not going to be a malcontent to get a championship. Bro. I'm going to just chill. I'm going to just do me. And if it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. But now you're saying, you know, my peers, they got something. And I'm trying to get that. Be a malcontent for a championship. Demand a trade and dictate where you want to they go. They'll send you there, bro. You Mr. the Portland. They're going to hook you up. But, look, man, I, look, they cool, but he not Steph Curry. Damian Willard is a souped-up Kyrie Irving. I say he's a souped up Kyrie. Because like Kyrie, he ain't playmaking. But he's a bucket getter. And he shoots with immense volume. And it leads to victories in the record season. So he got that can lead to the playoffs for sure. But in the postseason, because he lacks, I think, an effort to get to the basket consistently, an effort to embrace contact and get to a free throw line, an effort to play make for others, and an effort to find other creative ways to get shots. Instead of just pounding the ball for the next fifteen seconds and taking a step back three or a pull up contested jumper, you don't win nothing in the postseason. So that's just what it is. So, dang, appreciate you as a talent. Appreciate you as a player. You are gonna find your way out, boy. Then you'll figure it out. I just feel like it was a few years late, and I think that's gonna come back to bite him when you don't get the championship you're looking for. And it's like, dang, if I would have left a few years earlier, I could have could did something. And that's right you could have did something but you chose not to but that's the end of episode 22 22 it was great to be with you guys yet again on independent intel podcast i did the solo dolo joint thought i could manifest a guest wasn't able to happen i'll try to get a guest for next week um hope you guys are enjoying the postseason like i am in the nba once the nba finals is all the way done we're gonna be locking the load on that draft that's gonna be great content and also that training camp in the NFL starting again, that should be interesting, that should be enticing, it's all right. But without further ado, your boy KB is out. Hope you guys had a great time listening. I'm going to be back again next week. Holla at your boy. Follow me on at Intel Podcast on Instagram. Help your mans reach 500, 500 follows. But wait, before I go, I want to add a little new something to the pod, though. want to add a little new something to the pod. My rant, though. My rant, my rant. Before I dip on any subject that I choose, I'm gonna take a different outcome. I'm gonna talk about baseball. I know baseball having these intricate conversations about cheating, and all I saw last year was the fans diss the Astros for utilizing banking on trash cans to find out what type of pitches was coming at them. They head. That's all I heard. They frauds. But then I also heard that the Yankees was doing it too on the low low. They just didn't get caught. But hey. But now you're seeing the pitchers be putting stuff on the balls and before they throw the throw the pitch to control the direction of where the pitch goes for the hitter. And I'm just like, all right, look, I know about baseball history, about the royals, all that, but okay. I think baseball fanatics need to just embrace the fact that your sport's corrupt. They don't put cats in the hall of fame because they cheat. Yet come to find out, a lot of people cheat in your sport, bro. Your sport's unethical. That's unethical. First of all, it was built upon racism. You didn't let black players play until, like, the turn and, like, the 70s. But now you incorporate us into your game and everybody cheating. And so I'm just like, if you're all going to cheat, then why are we having these conversations about just the Astros championship count? Y'all whole sport was built upon cheating to further promote a dying game in the 90s. That's why cats can't steroids. And so now everybody wants to be sur-ethical. But then when I got it, they like, or a team that they like, does it. it's like oh uh, who cares but bump the astros fraudulent it's fraudulent sports unethical sports very corrupt embrace it love it appreciate it or if you're gonna go all the way on calling it out do so all the way don't be selective don't be but that's my take on that uh astros are ball and you 11th street and i remember the astros were trash when i was growing up a little young probably my middle high school years, and they started to slowly build something in their form system. It's come all together, and now they're competing for a chance to win their second championship. And it would be, what, four years? So, hey, they ain't cheat there, man. They, they build it through the form system and they're trying to make it happen. That's it for my rant. That's it for the podcast, episode 22. In its final form. You guys begin this on Apple and Spotify. Hope you have a great listen. Hope you have a great D. Great, great day, great day. The boys out. Peace.